Red Gold, The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna, is a book that asks why so many big bluefin tuna have vanished from the Atlantic Ocean. Author Jen Teleska notes that the term red gold has emerged out of the exorbitant price her ruby-colored flesh commands on the global market. For reference, in January 2019, a 613-pound Pacific bluefin tuna sold at market in Tokyo for an astounding record of 3.1 million U.S. dollars. To research this book, Teleska gained unparalleled access to the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, also known as ICAT, to show that the institution has faithfully executed the task assigned to it by international law, to fish as hard as possible to grow national economies. This interview between Teleska and editor Jason Wiedemann was recorded in May 2020 and has been edited for length. Good morning, Jen. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Good. Uh, my name is Jason Wiedemann. I'm editorial director at the University of Minnesota Press, and I am speaking uh, today with uh, Jen Teleska, um, and uh, we are talking about her book. Uh, it was just published by the University of Minnesota Press. Um, I was fortunate enough to be the acquiring editor. It's called Red Gold, The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for uh jumping on and, and having a conversation with me about this book. Thanks for having me, Jason. First of all, how are you doing? It's it's mid-May. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Are yeah. you doing okay? I'm doing okay. I'm doing Good. okay. Brooklyn yeah. is, is doing okay. Good. Well, congratulations on the book. Um, it's been out for a few weeks now. Um, how does it feel to have a book out in the world at this time? Well, you know, I have to say it is a beautiful book. You know, it's extraordinary to feel 10 years of my life effectively collapsed into 300 pages. <laughs> the cover image for the book is is beautiful. I, I think what strikes me about it is just how close I feel to this image of a giant bluefin tuna sort of staring back out at me. Yeah, can we talk about that for a minute? Because I want to acknowledge the way in which the cover image is the argument of the book writ small. It's that feeling that the the bluefin um, or any fish, any sea creature, looks you in the eye, but you also see fading in the distance these sort of ghosts of um, disappearing, vanishing fish as well. I had this, uh, I, I was joking around with my friends that I, I had this fantasy that some, you know, fisheries expert um, or uh, dilettante was going to uh, ask me this question uh, in public, but, you know, clearly we can't have any public events right now mm -hmm. about, you know, and saying that, oh, but you know, that, that stripe that appears from her nose through her eye, that doesn't actually exist on, um, on a bluefin. So this is actually uh, not a fair representation of of what a bluefin looks like. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I was actually, I, I have this fantasy that someone's going to ask me this question so that I can respond by saying, well, actually, that's only if you're looking at the bluefin objectively. If you think of the image as the viewer is reflected back onto the image, what's reflected mm -hmm. back onto the fish is that stripe of gold. 
Ah, I see. I see. So it's something that's been imposed on the fish. Right. And and the way that, that we have to remember that we're part of the frame. And once we recognize our own subjective involvement in the image, we have to be able to account for that mirrored reflection of gold. When I saw the image originally when it was sent to me, I thought that it was a photograph And then I learned that actually it was a detail of a painting. And the painting is by an artist who, after serving in World War II, taught painting at Pratt, which is is the Pratt Institute, which is where I'm currently uh, working. That's amazing. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Bluefin Tuna, because your book is focused on the bluefin tuna. And we are yeah. there are other kinds of tuna species yeah. out there. Bluefin tuna isn't necessarily the tuna that we'd find in a can. Yeah, not in a grocery store. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um so up until the 60s or 70s that would have been the case. In the 1970s you start to pivot toward a sushi economy that is globalized. So there's three different types three different species of bluefin across the global ocean, uh, two in the Pacific and one in the Atlantic. And the one in the Atlantic, which is the subject of this book, is the largest of all tuna, right? So, you know, and again, this is a creature that is capable of growing to be the size of a horse. Mm -hmm. This is a warm-blooded fish, right? So somewhere on the evolutionary scale between a cod and a whale, She's, I mean, it's just an extraordinary creature. The writing in the prologue really, you know, does this sort of wonderfully intimate job of introducing us to the, to the majesty of this, of this fish. Would you mind reading a little bit uh, from your prologue about, you know, the sort of introducing us to this, to this creature? Yeah, sure. With tiny scales and eyes flush to her body, more streamlined than a torpedo, the bluefin contracts her pectoral fins into slots to generate less friction when swimming. She tears through salted water like a bullet, accelerating as if her heart were a Porsche engine. One of the fastest fish at sea, cheetah-like, exceeding most speed limits on American roadways, she clocks over 50 miles per hour. In fact, the bluefin can cross the entire Atlantic Ocean in 40 days and somehow find the nine-mile stretch of the Strait of Gibraltar at its, narrow, at its narrowest point to enter the Mediterranean Sea. She enjoys one of the longest migrations of any fish on the planet. While the bluefin travels epic distances straight across the open ocean, she also travels to depths of 3,000 feet where water is black and icy cold. Some marine scientists think she communicates with her mates through flickering light, She's endowed with a pineal window on the top of her head between her eyes as photosensitive as the retina, which, like other tunas and sharks, allows her to receive faint light as she plays couples and chases prey up and down the water column and in low levels of moonlight. How stunning she is. A line of small triangular finlets and electric yellow rims her upper and lower back by a tail wimping in constant motion glinting in contrast with the dark metallic blue on her top and the iridescent silvery white on her belly 
she is camouflaged when other creatures view the depths of the sea from above or the sun and the moon from below. She is the ocean. That's just beautiful. The entire premise of this book is that these animals are, you know, this particular species is under threat of extinction. Is that fair to say? So I think what's fair to say is um, it's the giants are absolutely under threat of, of extinction in the sense that, you know, so when I talked to my dad and other old timers that knew waters from the 60s and 70s, they knew, you know, whether this be like out of Gloucester or Montauk, they knew that um, they would, you know, they were, there were stories of bluefin that would like quite literally break the, um, the rod and reel of, of fishers that were out at sea because the, the bluefin were so powerful. They're just, you know, literally they're, they're like one big giant muscle. You know, those days are gone. And, um, and so the preoccupation with these management regimes is not at all with the loss and the size of creatures, whether it be bluefin or cod or a Patagonian toothfish. They're not worried about the fact that those baselines shift downward and there are now less big fish in the sea. Mm-hmm. It's Their concern is, is how many of them are so that we can extract that biomass in order to feed the markets. And what we're talking about in terms of markets are the sort of global fish and, and sushi uh, regime, correct? For the yeah, for the bluefin, yeah. certainly. In the 1970s is when you start to see the advent of the global sushi economy. And that, in mm-hmm. large part, is because various people invested um, in creating the technology in order to move fresh fish across the globe as quick as they could. So we know that the European record shows that this is one of the bluefin is one of the first recorded fisheries in human history, dating back thousands of years to the time of the Phoenicians, right? The Roman emperors um, would have these banquets and they would serve, um, right? So the, the biggest fish were always reserved for the emperors. And we know that the biggest fish in the Mediterranean um, and in the Atlantic is the bluefin. You know, and I think there's another added dimension. You know, people think the Japanese have been eating sushi for centuries, you know, since time immemorial. And um, that's actually, at least with regards to the bluefin, not the case, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that, uh, you know, to even serve fish on ice is not possible until, right? We didn't have freezers mm-hmm. until the end of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. There's this other dimension too, which is um, the fact that the the bluefin historically was actually a fish for the poor and the working class in mm-hmm. Japan, like quite literally fed to cats because is it's warm blooded, uh, decomposes really quickly, mm-hmm. and as a result, um, that's one of the reasons why they started to serve the sushi with you know soy sauce to disguise flavor. So the sort of process of, of kind of fishing and, and sort of multiple extraction points for this fish, right? I mean, there's, it's fished on the east coast of North America. It's fished in the Mediterranean as well. And 
there is a sort of international response to this, to the decline of the bluefin tuna, right? Mm -hmm. So the second major character is the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, right? So um, the UN system loves its acronyms. So this one Mm -hmm. would be ICCAT or ICAT. At the end of World War II, effectively, um, after Europe and Japan experienced acute food shortages, the effort to double down on the fishing effort amongst industrialized countries was enormous. And so you see after World War II, beginning around 1950, you can look at these graphs that show just the extraordinary exponential increase in the extraction of wild fish from all of the global oceans. Mm-hmm. And so ICAT forms, you know, so people knew effectively already that there was a problem in the 1950s when effectively you had these long line fisheries, which, you know, quite literally is setting a long line with hooks at various intervals. I think you say in your book that these these fishing lines can be miles and miles long. Yeah. And so once people were able then to start fishing um, virtually uh, anywhere, any time of year, right? So not just close to shore, but also on the high seas, there was an indication that there was a problem in the 1950s, certainly by the 1960s. Mm-hmm. ICAT forms um, formally uh, by treaty uh, enters into force into in 1969. But this is before. So the key part, which is really quite fascinating, is that ICAT forms before the advent of the global sushi economy. Okay. So even before we, we reach the stage where we all want you know, delicious bluefin on our, on our, in our sushi rolls, we, we knew that the fish was, was being over, uh, over there was concern, right. There was concern even, um, even in the 1950s and 60s, right. And that's that, and, and it, it is precisely that concern that prompted ICAT to form. And its goal ostensibly is to protect the remaining and perhaps even, you know, reestablish and grow what, what, what fish stocks remain of the bluefin tuna, correct? Yeah. So I think part of the issue in many ways is quite literally crafted into the, into the treaty is this language of maximizing yields, right? So we know already Mm -hmm. that um, we're in the world of trade, but at the same time, given that that trade is in a wild sea creature, the ecological dimensions are also a part of it. ICAT is there not to ensure that the giant tuna or the swordfish and the shark, um, the seabirds, the turtles, all these creatures that are under ICAT's remit, that ICAT isn't there to ensure an ocean full of fish full of sea creatures into perpetuity for everyone on this planet. Mm-hmm. ICAT is there to ensure that the member states that sign up to the treaty have their export markets protected. You know, I mean, going to the meetings and, you know, maybe we should talk about how going to the meetings wasn't actually itself very easy to do. But in any case, there's the sense of when you're at these meetings, it's literally um, 
They are fish stocks. They are resources. They are units um, to process and trans and transship. They are, yeah, exactly. Like aggregate data points, right. That can be graphed and measured and put in a metric. And so you see the way it's all about the inventory. It's about knowing what, you know, what the state of, of the fish is in order to fish it as, uh, as much as possible without creating a wholesale extinction. Right. Um, so the concern then is um, twofold. How many fish do we take out of the sea each year? Right. So that's the mm-hmm. net quota. A second concern is um, how do you divide that quota up mm-hmm. uh, in ways that effectively reproduce the inherited share based on colonial relationships of old. And so you see the way the usual players, so the European Union, the United States, Japan, receive the lion's share of quota. Well, the the subtitle of your book is The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna. Is, is that how is that an accurate way to describe what ICAT is doing, kind of managing the extinction of this of this animal so that uh, as much profit can be derived as possible? I mean, so the short answer is yes. And um, the longer answer is that I think part of what is going on and part of what I observed from being in the field for three years is this recognition that clearly this institution, like others in the space of ocean governance, are not working very well. Mm-hmm. And clearly they must not be working very well if we're at a state where the half the world supply of seafood is from farmed fish. Mm-hmm. Right? So you see sort of steadily um, the decline in wild fish and, um, and the increase in fish farming. Right? And so we know that these institutions must not be working very well if um, wildlife in the ocean um, has declined so much mm-hmm. over the years. And so there's this sense in which I think it's imperative that people start to recognize and face directly the fact that the very institutions that are mandated to care for life at sea have been central to their extermination. We have to take seriously. So what is it, you know, the last time the planet has lost this much life was when, you know, dinosaurs roamed this earth and crashed, right? And, and we actually, we haven't yet mentioned, right? The, the red gold piece, you know, this is the most expensive fish money can buy. And is, I, can, can, you, can you say that ICAT is partly responsible for the, for the mass commodification of this fish? Effectively, you know, one way to look at it is ICAT is... Right, that this is an institution that is effectively there to regulate supply, but to regulate only the supply that appears legal. When you have a fish that's worth um, as much as the bluefin, uh, the market incentive to develop illegal trade or black markets is, is enormous. Right? So, um, so as a result, in addition to the legal trade, that ostensibly um, ICAT is in charge of, um, there's also this parallel 
illegal market that runs alongside it that is also equally as concerning and equally as concerning because we actually have no real idea about how many fish, um, how many bluefin are actually going to market. So I want to talk about kind of the other, the maybe the, sort of the flip side to ICAT, um, and that might be um, institutions or initiatives to uh, to save the bluefin tuna. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is, is there opposition to the work that ICAT is doing? Um, has it been successful? How, how, how does that work? So uh, I'll share that chapter three was by far the hardest one for me to write in the whole book. I struggled with this chapter for years. And the title of this chapter is uh, Saving the Glamour Fish, The Limits of Environmental Activism. Yeah, and so it's here that um, I talk about what I call the savior plot, mm-hmm. which is this effort on behalf of well-meaning uh, environmentalists and well-meaning journalists to uh, raise the profile of the bluefin in the public sphere in order for people to realize just how bad overfishing is. Uh, So you see throughout the coverage of the various bluefin campaigns, this effort to save the fish. And um, should I read the opening? Yeah, please do. So the opening of chapter three, so this is the savior plot. So bluefin tuna is a glamour fish. This is a quote. A boat captain from New England, Riley said to me over coffee at a tiny cafe in New York City's Chinatown in May 2011. His statement startled me, but only later did I fully appreciate its implications for ocean governance. He was right. The bluefin was meant for global elites, a delectable consumed by the leisure class, a brilliant jewel in the prestige economy, a star singled out for supranational regulatory action, She was also, as I explore in this chapter, a creature cast to play a leading role as charismatic megafauna in international news. Celebrity was not accorded other commercial fish in the conventionary of ICAT. The bladed swordfish has not garnered as much public attention as the bluefin, while the plight of the other tunas under ICAT's remit, the big eye, the yellowfin, the albacore, rarely, if ever, made global headlines. And here's the point, right? Mm -hmm. A diva dethroned, an icon under duress, a victim of crimes against nature, the greed of industry, the incompetence of bureaucracy, the temptation of bootleggers in black markets, ravenous consumers freely choosing in a world of infinite goods, environmentalists selfishly battling against the impending collapse of a species. The bluefin, it seemed, needed a savior. And so the chapter really is an exploration of, um, in many ways, this effort by the journalists and the environmentalists of the global north of mourning the loss of what they simultaneously destroy. Hmm. And um, I think in many ways we need to ask, so why is it that this predatory regime of value prevails Mm -hmm. even in the face of this massive transnational media campaign to draw attention to the plight of this fish? 
you see the there's like basically two waves. So you get the first one in the um, early 1990s, where um, the you know there's these massive environmental campaigns, and so let's save the bluefin. That's clusters in the West Atlantic, and then beginning in um, 2005-ish, you start to see revved up the campaign to save bluefin in the Eastern Atlantic. And so the New York Times covers this story up until 2012. And still to this day, still to this day, the New York Times has not mentioned a peep about what's going on um, with the bluefin. And in this intervening time, when um, the fish effectively was declared saved by both the journalists and to a certain extent, the environmentalists, at the same time, ICAT has, um, and its industries, have effectively capitalized on this very misguided perception. Mm. And so you have the lowest level of quota for bluefin in the East Atlantic in 2010. And now its highest quota, it's spiked, it's tripled in less, in, in, in 10, 10 years, years time. Because of this narrative that the ICAT is, is sort of using for cover that, that the bluefin tuna has, has been saved. And further, my fear is that some of the environmentalists, not all of them, you know, clearly, mm-hmm. and clearly not all of the journalists, but the, the dominant narrative suggests that there's this sense like, oh, the bluefin, that's an old story. Right. Hmm. So now the quota for bluefin in the East Atlantic is the highest ever in ICAT's history. And further, there was a report by Europol, which is, you know, it's like the police agency for, um, for Europe conducted a sting operation in the Mediterranean and found in 2018 that the illegal catch for bluefin, the illegal catch for bluefin is double the volume of the legal one. That's incredible. And of course the ICAT's mandate doesn't include this elite, doesn't include policing of this illegal fishing, correct? It doesn't. It like technically it doesn't, but it, it has, um, so, in 2011, they adopted, you know, these sorts of like, you know, if we track and trace the fish, then that's going to really save the animal. And, um, and so even though they've had these track and trace programs officially in place since 2011, this report suggesting that the legal catch is double the legal one, that's in 2018. Mm-hmm. So those uh, protocols to track and trace have been in place for almost a decade now. And so, again, I think part of, you know, for me, what is revealing about the savior plot and this language of saving the fish is its own limitations, right? So, so fish, like the, the bluefin isn't an object. It's not a commodity. It's not, um, you know, money compounding interest in a bank account, mm-hmm. right? This is an animal that needs to be respected and revered. And so you, you see the way in some ways, even... Even, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the journalists, the environmentalists, even the scientists, right, the ones that are in position to best sing her praises have also internalized this predatory logic mm-hmm. of fish as commodity. Mm-hmm. 
So how do we move beyond this notion of the bluefin tuna or any animal for that matter as, as strictly a commodity? I think we're in a place where right, so we know that you have to create marine protected areas, these, these no-take zones, free of fishing that would allow creatures to rebound. Mm-hmm. Right? We know that when the U.S. and the European Union and Japan and others subsidize their fishing industries, that effectively creates not only distortions in the market, but it allows the extraction um, to continue unabated. So we know that those those subsidies, you know, and this is some of this is before the World Trade Organization, right? So we know some of this stuff needs to happen. And I, I, I think we're at a point that it's not necessarily a matter of what to do. I think we're at a point where we need, I think Im- implicitly the book is asking us to expand the bounds of who counts in what must be done. Mm-hmm. And that as planetary stewards, we must incorporate vulnerable beings into our ambit of care, Mm -hmm. right? So that means then cultivating a world of belonging and not belongings. It's not some pie in the sky kind of um, remedy. It's the, for me, it's the only practical way forward. And it's practical in the sense that engages the enormity of the present danger of mass extinction Mm -hmm. and it addresses the impasse that um, has resulted from i mean what is an abject techno-scientific failure on behalf of these institutions to conserve sea creatures for future generations so jen i I want to ask you a little bit about um, what brought you to this particular topic into this particular animal. And uh, what leads me to this question is, is what you read for us from uh, chapter three about, um, you know, how, how do conservation efforts um, attract the attention of, 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 of people to kind of mobilize um, um, affect towards uh, saving these animals. And you mention um, the bluefin as, as a megafauna. And I think of, you know, conservation efforts that that really do capture our attention are often around animals that have such an important place in human psyche. Uh, the elephant, the silverback gorilla, the orangutan, uh, whales. Why, why did you decide to write a book about tuna? And how did you gain access to these, the sort of international corridors of, of commodity extraction? You know, part of my frustration in some ways is the sense that the mountain gorilla and the elephants, you know, to, clearly the tiger, right? Clearly mm-hmm. all, um, all creatures are important. Mm-hmm. But there is this persistence in the popular imagination when you're talking about sea creatures, the whales tend to be privileged, uh, similar to the dolphins, because these are mammals just like us. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the way in which you know. I mean, even the perception that fish are wildlife too is actually relatively recent. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, 1990s. So there's a sense of 
in many ways, just sort of elevating the profile of the fact that all beings uh, must be respected and revered. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that that even within the world of fisheries, the bluefin has its own hierarchy of value in the sense that the bluefin is the top fish amongst all of them in the world of fisheries. And so I'm not at all suggesting, you know, we just revere the bluefin. I think it's revere all creatures, right, that are, uh, that are integral to the interdependency of life, right? So, um, and so in some ways, you know, the, the answer to your question is, how do we move um, in order to also take into account non-territorial, non-land-based creatures mm-hmm. that um, aren't just a mammal just like us? And then, you know, some of that is just also from my own personal biography. So, you know, I'm grown up next to the sea and I have seen the marine environment degrade before my mm-hmm. eyes in my lifetime. And so when I was a little kid, I would go with my family in summer and see these massive game fish on docks um, at the end of a sport tournament. Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember these were just like massive creatures and those creatures are now gone. And so I came upon the idea to focus on the bluefin in large part because I uh, was deciding on a on a dissertation topic, and I, I couldn't land on one um, that really spoke to me. And this was around the time of the Copenhagen climate change talks. And I just I remember um, going kayaking on Thanksgiving Day in uh, t- 2009, wondering where all the fish had gone. This was at the time of the of the height of the bluefin campaign. And so in many ways, I rode that wave too. It was not easy to get access to ICAT. Some researchers have been declined entry. In many ways, I was really indebted to a member of the U.S. delegation, right? So, you know, if we can remember 2009, 2010 mm-hmm. is before the rise of Trump. So this is the Obama administration mm-hmm. and um, someone had reached out to me. And I remember hearing early in when I was in the field, there was this comparison someone had made that or what, the, what the EU is to fisheries the U.S. is to climate, hmm. meaning, you know, in some ways, the European Union is much more invested in fisheries economically um, than the U.S. Mm-hmm. is, which doesn't mean that there aren't other important questions about empire that come up in this, you know, as I, as I discuss in the book. But the point being that I think um, I was really surprised, actually, when going to the field that the U.S. was actually one of the leading conservation voices at the time. And, you know, again, that has, since has changed, but nonetheless, my intuition is that in some, so in order to apply for observer status, I ha, you have to go through the secretariat and then the secretariat um, puts your application up to the member states. Mm-hmm. And if enough member states uh, decline your application, then you, you're not granted the observer status. And so um, I think I may have benefited from the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen and in some ways was able to expose the madness that Mm. is happening inside these regimes. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Jen, I want to ask you about the the process of writing this book. You mentioned that it it began as uh, um, as your dissertation. You know, it's it's a very analytical text, but it's also deeply emotional, and it certainly engendered an emotional response in me um, as an editor, and caused me to reflect on the choices of of what I eat, um, and allowed me to question or, or forced me to question. Do I know a little bit about the life of the animals that I consume? Where does the emotions behind this book come from for you? Some of it is certainly from my own biography and the feeling that having seen the marine environment degrade before my eyes in my own lifetime is a deep sadness that I feel as the loss of my home. Mm-hmm. So the, I, I, there's this sense, and I think it's not just, you know, my own experience, but for many people, you know, the sea is, um, you know, it's like I can go anywhere and feel if I see waves crashing on the shoreline, I somehow feel at home. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, the, you know, the end of a, of a creature that is, that is no longer giant is to me a recognition of the way in which my own home has been on the receiving end of um, just enormous extraction and destruction in ways that I didn't consent to. Mm. You know, there was these moments when I was like writing throughout the material. And at some point, I knew intuitively that I couldn't refer to this creature as an it. it. Mm -hmm. Because by doing so, I would uh, reinforce the alienation that is otherwise spread throughout the social structure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I chose, you know, it's interesting. So it's like in, in Spanish, it's el atun rojo. So actually in Spanish, it is mas- the, the bluefin is treated as masculine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided to go with feminine, you know, not as to treat the bluefin as like a damsel in distress, you know, as, as a being that needs to be saved, but rather to be in solidarity with non-human nature in the way that women's work mm-hmm. is also um, available for free, it seems. So I made that choice and, and it, it's, it's, it's actually really difficult um, to do because you realize just how hardwired it is in our linguistic repertoire. You know, at the same time, though, I feel like you've rewired at least my brain in this way. That's great. Um, I don't think I could look at a bluefin tuna and see it as an it. I mean, again, it's it's this marvelous ability you have in this book to, and it goes back to our first, you know, the way we opened this conversation about the cover. It's It's another way of making us look this fish in the eye. And to right. relate to it as a fellow creature. So I want to thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's also, um, I think it's important for me to acknowledge too. I'm recognizing now that the book is out in the world. There is a, a trauma. There is a, a, a turmoil. There is something deeply unsettling about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember Jason, at one point you had asked me 
how do you practice self-care? And so I think, you know, there's, there's a sense that, and I was kind of adamant about this in the book, is, is the, the way in which I actually, I do want the reader to feel that weight, that tremendous weight, but at the same time to not feel paralyzed by mm-hmm. it. I hope people are able to confront directly the anxiety in order for us to heal, right? So that in in the sense that we can't adequately move out of this unless we know what this mm, yes, is. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and, and I think, I hope that once we can name what this is, we can begin to neutralize its power in order to chart another course. And, and that must come. I mean, I, this, this regime is not going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, I do feel it an invitation for people to say, this is not the world I want to live in. What is the world that I want to live in that I want to help co-create? And that's, that's the place I hope people come to, right? So that they see the, they see these creatures as, um, as beings that share our earth, that they do need to be reclaimed and loved and respected because they're all part of our planetary mm. home. Well, I, th- I think you've done a wonderful job of both lifting the lid on these processes as well as, as forcing us, uh, again, to, to relate to the animals that we share this planet with and, and sometimes eat as, as in some ways equals to us in terms of claims to this, uh, to this earth. You've done a wonderful job. It's, it's a beautiful book. It tells an amazing, wild, unbelievable story, and I hope it. I hope it changes people's minds. Well, Jen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this extended conversation with you post publication, and to reflect on just the enormous amount of work and labor and care that you've put into this book. It's. Uh, I hope it's an inspiration to anyone who's you know, looking to study the, the sort of fate of our relationship to other animals. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Thanks, Jason. <laughs>